0: This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. Well, today we're going to be in Habakkuk chapter 1. We're going to be starting with verse 11. We're going to pick up where we left off from last week when Pastor Jason introduced us to the book of Habakkuk. Uh, Pastor Jason did a great job of helping us see where the book of Habakkuk falls in the timeline of the Bible, helping us see where this fits within the history of God's people. So we know that this falls after the time of people like King David. This comes after the pe- uh, time of people like Solomon. Uh, by this point, the nation of Israel had already split in two. There was the tribes that made up the nation of Israel in the north, and two tribes made up Judah in the south. And so by the time we get to the time of Habakkuk, things have really started to go downhill for these nations. Uh, They've turned away from God. They are following after the idols from the nations around them. They have rejected God's laws. They're no longer following His decrees that He's given them in the Torah. And actually, the nation of Israel in the north has already seen God's judgment, and Judah is not far behind. So what we're going to see, actually, is that uh, today we're going to see Habakkuk cry out to see that Judah would actually receive that same judgment, which might sound odd, but you've got to understand what Habakkuk's seeing. Habakkuk is seeing a nation that has rebelled against God. He's seeing a nation that is refusing to acknowledge his laws and his decrees. And because of that, things have gotten bad there. Habakkuk, in verse 1 and following, cries out to God and says, Father, look at the world that I live in. Look at the things that I'm dealing with. The people here have rejected you. They no longer belong to you. They no longer care about you. And because of that, they've rejected your laws, and injustice is everywhere. Sin is rampant. Things are bad here. And he says, God, please help. So he cries out to God to ask him for his assistance, to ask for justice to come. And God responds and says, Habakkuk, I hear you. And what we're going to do is we're going to send in the Chaldeans. I'm going to send in this nation to punish you, to, to to conquer you with their powerful army. And actually, they're a nation that's worse than you are. They're a nation that's more sinful, a nation more deserving of judgment. So we can understand why Habakkuk might have a hard time understanding why this would be God's plan. He might have an issue with this plan. Um, and that's actually what we're going to see today, Habakkuk is going to submit a second complaint to God asking, how could this be a part of your plan? How could this series of bad events be a part of your good plan? How can you send in a nation who deserves judgment more than we do to judge us? And it's a legitimate question, but Habakkuk is kind of struggling with something that I think many of us struggle with. We want instant judgment, especially for those who offend us. We don't necessarily want it if we offend somebody else, right? But we want instant judgment for those who offend us. And that's pretty common. It's a pretty common human uh, dilemma. Um, Actually, we're entering into a season right now, um, which I think most of us, or a lot of us at least, are looking forward to. And that's football season. Growing up in Alabama, uh, you don't really have any choice but to be a football fan, right? You're just raised in it. It's in your blood. Uh, And so I'm particularly excited about it. And one thing I've noticed that is that um, anytime a foul is committed in the football game, right, anytime a penalty occurs, that flag comes out almost immediately. As soon as somebody jumps off sides, the flag gets thrown. As soon as somebody gets hit laid out of bounds, two or three flags may get thrown all at once. Um, the instant judgment is there. But there's one case in which that's really not what usually happens, and that's intentional grounding. So uh, everybody may not be a football fan or, or maybe unfamiliar with that term, Intentional grounding is essentially this. Imagine you're the quarterback. You drop back to make a pass. You look out and you notice that all of your receivers are covered. Uh, You can't throw to any of them. You basically have two options. You can stand there and take the hit eventually, which is going to hurt, and you're going to lose yards, and it's not a good outcome. Or you can take the ball and chunk it out of bounds as far away from anybody as possible. That way, uh, you don't lose any or you don't lose any yards, but you don't gain any. You're cutting your losses and moving on to the next play. The issue is, though, there are very certain rules about when you're allowed to just chunk that ball out of bounds, and if you violate those rules, it's called intentional grounding and it's a penalty. And usually, when this happens, it's pretty obvious to everyone. Uh, but the problem that occurs here is that when intentional grounding happens, the flag doesn't come out right away. Usually there's a process that the referees take before they throw that flag. They see the foul, and they all gather together, and they talk about it to make sure that all the criteria were met for this to be intentional grounding. And when they're sure, one official usually gently pulls the flag out of his waistband and just kind of drops it. And this is how it happens almost every time. They gather, they talk, they figure it out, and then the flag comes. Uh, the big problem with this, though, is that every player and coach on the other team seem to simultaneously forget that this is how it happens almost every single time, right? And they are outraged, furious at the fact that the flag hasn't already come. So they gather around the ref, the players gather all around him and start yelling, screaming, where's the flag? You know, crying injustice, that whole thing. And usually when the flag is super obvious, the referee will do something. He'll, he'll kind of have this little, this little action that he takes that you can even see on TV. You can kind of read his lips. As he makes his way together with the other referees, he will just kind of simply push past the players very stoically, and he'll look at them and he'll say, relax, I saw it. So he doesn't promise that the flag is going to come. He doesn't tell the players that, oh, this penalty is on the way. He just simply looks at them, says, relax, I saw it. And then he goes to continue on with the process. And the strange thing is, this is usually enough to make the players relax, right? Usually, they see that and they're okay. Why? Because when they know that the judge has seen the offense, they have faith that it's just a matter of time before justice is served. Today, we're going to see something similar with Habakkuk. Uh, He's going to cry out to God. He's going to go to God as a judge, and he's going to say, Father, Here are the sins, the offenses, and the wrongs of the Chaldeans. Please judge them. But what we're not going to see is, we're not going to see God throw the flag right away. Instead, he's going to look at Habakkuk and say, relax. I saw it. He'll say, don't worry. I've seen the offense, but what you need to do is sit back and trust me. So with that being said, let's jump into our text today. We're going to be in Habakkuk chapter 1, and we're going to start with verse 12. And it says, Are you not from eternity, Lord my God? My Holy One, you will not die. Lord, you appointed them to execute judgment. My rock, you destined them to punish us. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil, and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So, why do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up the one more righteous than himself? So Habakkuk's complaint is is pretty uh, pretty easy to understand, right? He he says, God, if you're you're good and you're holy, so how come when you're working out justice, you're using people who deserve judgment more than we do? How come the people who deserve judgment most aren't receiving it first? Habakkuk doesn't seem to see how this is fair, and uh, that's a, that's a pretty re- you know, relatable complaint. We can understand why he would say that. But I think what's odd about the way that he says this, the way that he brings this before God, is how he talks about it. Notice how he talks about it first. Notice the first part of his complaint. It isn't anger with God. It's not frustration, necessarily. He begins by talking about the great attributes of God. He says, God, I know that you're holy. God, I know that you're eternal. God, you are my rock. God, you are the one that ordains judgment. God, you are purer than... Uh, Pure than to look on sin idly. And because he knows these things about God, because these are the facts that he holds dear about his father, that's where his question comes out of. That's where he asks, because these things are true, how can these bad things be a part of your good plan? Habakkuk is confused because what he knows to be true about the nature of God, what he holds dear seems to conflict directly with his very real life experience. Habakkuk is living in a terrible time. Habakkuk's living in a life, uh, in, a, in an age where the quality of life is low because people are sinful, because they are re- rejecting God, rebelling against him, and now he's being told that foreign armies are going to come and invade. Things are rough for him. He's living in a rough age. And it would be very difficult to see how that lines up with God's good plan. So he asks, God, how can this be?" I want us to notice, though, what Habakkuk's question isn't. Habakkuk isn't asking God, are you good? He's not asking God, are you just? No, no, those are assumed. What he's asking is, God, since you are good, how can these bad things be a part of your good plan? He continues his complaint in verse 14. He says, you have made mankind like the fish of the sea, like marine creatures that have no ruler. The Chaldeans pull them all up with a hook, catch them in their dragnet, and gather them in their fishing net. That is why they are glad and rejoice. That is why they sacrifice to their dragnet and burn incense to their fishing net. For by these things their portion is rich and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slaughter the nations without mercy? Habakkuk kind of turns to the brutality of the uh, of the Chaldeans. Um, he kind of paints a picture for us. He says that they are so ruthless, they are so brutal, that for them it's really no more difficult to slaughter nations than it would be for a fisherman to have to kill fish for his first for job. Right? It's no harder for the Chaldeans to wipe out entire peoples than it is for a fisherman to catch fish and to sell them and to move on about his day there's no conscience there. Their conscience has been seared. They don't care. There's nothing to stop them. And so they continue on. The odd thing about this, though, this doesn't even seem to be the main part of Habakkuk's complaint. He's not really most upset about their brutality. He's most upset about their idolatry and their pride, right? Uh, We see that that Habakkuk says that once they catch these fish, right? They 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 worship their drag nuts, They burn incense to in their fishing nets. They're praising the source of their power. Uh, chapter one, verse eleven told us that their power, their praise. That's their God. They worship their own power. They worship their own might. They worship their ability to conquer. And that's their idolatry. It's not just idolatry, and it's not just pride. It's the two bound together. Habakkuk saying, God, at least we're a people that that we may be sinful, but at least we acknowledge you, and we know this is a part of your plan, and we know that you're in control of all things. These people don't even do that. You're using them as your weapons, and they don't even know who you are. Worse yet, they think they're the reason for the power, and they worship themselves because of it. God, how can this be? God, how can they be so brutal? How can they be so idolatrous? How can they be so prideful? And his big question here at the end is, and how can their payment for that be blessing? How can they continually grow rich of such evil things? This question is one that's not... um, you know, unique to Scripture, right? This is something that that gets brought up a lot of different places in the Bible. One place that you can see it is Psalm 73. The psalmist there comes before God and says, God, I want to worship you and I praise you. I know that you're good. He says, but as for me, my foot had almost slipped. I'd almost failed. You know, I envied the wicked. I saw that they were doing wrong things and they were reaping good benefits from it and I envied them. And the psalmist eventually goes on to say, but then you showed me their way. You showed me that all of their evil deeds would eventually lead to their destruction and the best way is to follow you right so this is not something that's unique to scripture but right here you know he's in the middle of it he hasn't got to the place that the psalmist has habakkuk is still in the place where it just looks like the wicked are prospering for their wickedness and that's a hard thing to deal with so habakkuk has now come before God a second time laid down his complaint at his feet said God take this you're in charge of this I- i'm trusting this to you i have nothing left to do hear my words and once he does that, he waits. Let's see what chapter 2, verse 1 says. It says, I will stand at my guard post and station myself on the lookout tower. I will watch to see what he will say to me and what I should reply about my complaint. So after all this, after the, these, these huge complaints, begging God to understand this plan of his that's what it is, right? He's trying to understand the plan. He's not doubting God's goodness. He's not doubting God's justice or His ability to make good plans. He's he's wondering how these good plans line up with the terrible things He's seeing. And after he asks these questions, and he still doesn't have an answer, what does he do? He waits. He trusts. He paints a picture here for us of of him standing on top of the city wall and being a lookout. Right? It says he will take his watch post. He's standing on top of the city wall looking over at the hills, waiting for the message of God to arrive. Maybe a, a better picture for us to understand was, uh, imagine Habakkuk like on a ship in the 1600s heading for the New World, right? And he knows that this is going to be a long journey, and he doesn't know how quite how long it's going to be, but he knows that land will appear eventually. So what he does is he climbs up in the crow's nest, he gets himself a vantage point above the sails, and he sets his eyes on the horizon because he knows that land will appear at some point. It may be now, it may be in the next few hours, or it may be weeks away, but he knows that if he fixes his gaze on that horizon long enough, he will surely see land. And that's what Habakkuk's doing. He says, if I wait here long enough and I look out, I know that I'll get an answer from God. I know that he's there. I know that he hears me. And so he waits. He lives out what the psalmist says in Psalms 27, One of my favorite verses in the Bible, honestly. It just says, Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. And there's nothing really complicated about that verse. But it's simple, it's it's so simple. It's so direct. It's so straightforward that, that in the repetition we're just reminded we just wait. You may, you may not understand it in the moment. You may not understand what's going on in difficult times and hard times, but just, just wait. Just wait on God's goodness. Just wait on him to act, because he surely will. That's what Habakkuk believes. He believes that God will surely, surely act. He will surely speak. And sure enough, in 2 verse 2, he does. He responds. says, The Lord answered me. Write down this vision. Clearly inscribe it on tablets, so one may read it easily. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it since it will certainly come and not be late. So God responds to Habakkuk and he responds strongly, right? He says, listen to the words that I'm about to say because they carry great weight. They're very important. Listen to what I'm about to tell you and write it down. He tells Habakkuk actually to write it down in stone, write it in tablets, which should kind of remind us of another place in the Old Testament. Where else has God had his words written down in stone? You're reminded of like the Ten Commandments, right? God is is kind of giving Habakkuk a little hint. He said, Here is my word, just as sure as the Ten Commandments which we built my nation on. As surely as that was my word, so is this. This is the word of the Lord, so wait for it, because it will surely come about. It's a promised thing. There's no doubt in it. He tells him, actually, that... that, um, he needs to write it down so that it can be easily read so that it can be taken to where he wants it to go god is the king and he is sending his messenger habakkuk with a message for the people that here comes judgment here's what i'm going to do it's a definite promised thing so wait for it he goes on to say um, it won't delay this message won't delay so wait for it which can be kind of confusing right it won't delay, so so wait for it. Hold on, it's coming quick, so just just wait patiently. So it's kind of confusing for us. It's kind of hard to kind of think about that. But but here's the point that God is making: is it's that His timing is perfect. It's always perfect. Nothing will happen later than the perfect time. Do we understand that? Do we understand that we worship a God of history that is control of every act that's ever taken place? Every moment in history is under His orchestration. Nothing will ever happen later than the perfect time. Nothing will ever happen before it's meant to. God's plan has every detail in timing and action. It's worked out to perfection. And it may seem slow to us, but it never, never is. And in our hearts, as we go through things day by day, as we struggle with pain of life from so many different areas, every day that we struggle with that, it's hard. It's a real feeling. That's something that's very real to deal with. But God is never late in his actions. There's never a time where he's done something for us after he should have. He knows the perfect time, and he always acts in accordance with it. Second Peter 3.9 reminds us that the Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay. No, his timing is always perfect, and it's always right. And he reminds back of that as well. And then we get into verse 4 and 5. And this is where the main thrust of God's message for Habakkuk is. This is the point that God is trying to get across to his servant. The lesson he's trying to teach him is right here. He says, Look, his ego is inflated and he is without integrity. But the righteous one will live by his faith. Moreover, wine betrays. An arrogant man is never at rest. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol and like death. He is never satisfied. He gathers all the nations to himself, and he collects all the peoples for himself. So the verse in here that you probably have heard of before, right, is that the righteous will live by faith. We find it in the New Testament. That's a, that's a, a idea that many of us are familiar with. It's a verse that many of us are familiar with. Uh, but before we get into that, let's look at its context. Let's look what's after it and before it. Let's look what's surrounding this verse so we can better understand what God is saying. God doesn't talk about Habakkuk first. He doesn't talk about the righteous first. No, Instead, he starts talking about the Chaldeans. He starts talking about not the righteous, but the wicked. He says that that the Chaldean is, look, his his ego is inflated. He says that he is an arrogant man. He says that he is never satisfied. He says that he gathers up the nations to himself. God, this is where God looks at Habakkuk and, and does what we talked about earlier. God looks at Habakkuk and says, relax. I see it. Habakkuk has made his complaint. He's talked about the evils of the Chaldeans. And God says, relax. I've seen their wickedness. He said, I have seen that they're puffed up, that they worship themselves for their own power. He says, I see that they're arrogant, that their pride is out of control. I see that they are greedy, taking whatever they want, no matter the cost, no matter what it does to other people. He says, I see that they are never satisfied that they have no reason in their own minds to stop. God says, I see all this. I see that they think that they are their own final authority. I see that they live to please themselves. I see that they think their own purpose in life is to fulfill their own appetites. God says, I see it. But God says, but you need to worry about something else. I see what they're doing. I know what's going on there. I'm the judge and I, I can see what's going on. But as for you, what you should do, what the righteous do. The righteous live by faith. As opposed to the wickedness of the Chaldeans, here's the opposite. Here's what you should be doing. You should be living in faith. The wording here in the original language is actually kind of strange when we look at the word faith. Um, That term can actually be taken one of two ways. It can mean faith, as in trusting, waiting on the Lord, depending on Him. Or it could be The righteous live by faithfulness, right? And that may not seem like a big difference, but it kind of is, because faithfulness is about what we do. It's about continuously serving the Lord, not failing to do so, uh, doing what He wants us to do consistently, so there's faith, which is relying on God, and then there's faithfulness, which is about our continually serving Him. So you can see why the difference is important here. Do the righteous live by trusting in God alone, or do they live by doing the things that God wants them to do? They, do they live by trusting in God or doing things? And the answer is both. You see, in the Bible, there's never really a place where we see a faith that believes, but not a faith that acts. There's no category in Scripture for somebody who is, has faith but is not faithful. The two always go hand in hand. We talked about that a lot as we went through our James study last month, right? That faith and works go hand in hand. They aren't working against each other, but they're a part of the same family. They're always paired. So, what God is saying here, and what, what He's bringing out in this like dichotomy between wickedness and righteousness, is He's saying, Look, I see the Chaldeans. And I see that that they are people that live for themselves, they worship themselves, they take for themselves, they destroy for themselves. But you, the righteous, you're going to live for me. You're not going to live for yourself. You're not going to trust in yourself. You're not going to live for your own desires. But instead, you're going to live for me. You're going to put your life, your trust, your pride, your works, you're going to put them in my hands. You're going to depend on me when it's easy and when it's hard. The righteous are those who put their lives, every bit of it, in my hands, and they wait and they trust. The righteous aren't the ones that are serving themselves when difficult times come. They're not the ones that say, I have to take care of my own. They're the ones that sit back and trust that God is their Savior and He's looking after them. That's not an easy thing for us to do, right? Right? God is teaching Habakkuk here that uh, that no matter what, no matter how difficult the season, no matter how bleak the year, which we're certainly having that right now, right? The righteous will not turn to trust themselves, but they will continue to lean on me and serve me. They will simply, simply relax and know that I see. That's the lesson that God's teaching Habakkuk. Habakkuk came in the question with, God, will you do justice? And he got the answer, Relax and have faith in me. It's not the answer he was necessarily looking for, but it was the lesson that God wanted to teach him, which shows that not always the question that we go in with is what God answers, but he always answers what we need to know. So how, how do we how do we apply this? How do we apply this to our lives? Sometimes we look at Bible verses or books uh, or, or, or stories in Scripture, and they're confusing stories or they're confusing verses or just strange, and we say, how do I apply this to my life? because we don't know what the lesson is in it. And that's one way that makes it hard to apply things. But another way that it's hard to apply Scripture to our lives is in times like this, where the lesson is really obvious. The lesson is trust God even when it's hard and let everything fall into His hands. Trust Him with your life. But the problem with applying that is that's really hard to do sometimes. Really hard to do. So so how do we apply this in our lives practically? How do we honestly sit back in difficult times and say, God, here's my life. I trust you with it. I'm going to depend on you every day. Because these are difficult times. This is a difficult year. This is a painful season. It's a unique time. This is a unique time. But sometimes we forget that unique times are not unique in history. Every generation seems to have a unique time, right? Some sort of historical thing that's happening that that just blows everybody off their feet. I'm reminded of a pastor in England in uh, the mid-20th century. His name was Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was actually born in 1899 in Wales, but he, he did most of his ministry in England. So he was born right at the end of the Enlightenment. So his generation was actually a very difficult time to be a pastor. You see, uh, the generation before him during the Enlightenment, they believed that they had reached humanity's peak. Huge machines were being produced that allowed mass production like nothing the world had ever seen. Science was reaching new heights. Philosophy was flourishing. People thought that they were on their way to the perfection of humanity. They were hugely optimistic and thought they were on the path to utopia. But it was... Lloyd-Jones' generation that were the ones that were harshly dragged back to reality. Because it was his generation that saw these big, beautiful machines in production didn't save humanity, but instead they made war more efficient. They made World War I the bloodiest war the world had ever seen. They saw that this philosophy had taught that humanity could fix poverty all on her own, and, and they saw it lead to communism and the Stalinist genocides that killed tens of millions. They saw science used to justify unspeakable acts by the Nazis during the Holocaust. The very things that the world had trusted in had brought it to its knees. And his generation watched the hope of their fathers and grandfathers be swept away. So it's safe to say that it was a difficult generation to be a preacher to bring the good news Not only that, but Martin Lloyd-Jones was in England, which historically was a Christian nation, but during his time was quickly, quickly moving away from scriptural ideas. Luckily, though, um, Lloyd-Jones found himself in a pretty decent position in 1939. Uh, He was set to take over a new congregation in London. It was actually a very prestigious church. And the day before he was officially to take charge, during service that Sunday, it was announced that Germany had officially declared war with England not long after the air raid sirens began. Luckily that day, they were just test runs, but this, this marked a huge shift in the life of the people in that country. From that moment on, people began to flee. They fled from the cities for safety. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones had to send his own wife and children away, and, and with that, the numbers of his church dwindled, eventually calling into question whether this historic church could even survive. In the first number of weeks, the 39-year-old new pastor wasn't even sure if he would be able to serve the church or if he would get called into military service. And it took about a year for the air raids to actually arrive in London. And when they did, they didn't stop. Bunkers had to be built in haste. Their church was hit and partially burned. Firemen had to be stationed on the property just to make sure that the building would survive. Church members' homes were hit by bombs. Congregants would show up to service on Sunday morning, talk to Lloyd-Jones, and later that evening, in an instant, be called home to glory. So you have to wonder, if you're, if you're Martin Lloyd-Jones, what do you say to these people? What do you say to a church that's living in a time, that's facing the challenges that they're facing, that's going through so many personal things? What do you say to these people? What do you do? Well, what he did was within the first few weeks of the air raids, he actually preached from this book. He preached from Habakkuk. Later down the road, he actually wrote a book on the book of Habakkuk. And in this book, he gives us a little bit of a glimpse of how we can apply this to our lives. Here's what he says. He says, The key to the history of the world is the kingdom of God. The problems of today are to be understood only in this light. What God is permitting in the church and the world today is related to His great purpose for His church and His own kingdom. Let us not, therefore, be stumbled when we see surprising things happening in this world. Rather, let us ask, What is the relevance of this event to the kingdom of God? Or if it is strange, uh, if strange things are happening to you personally, don't complain, but say, what is God teaching me through this? We We need not become bewildered and doubt the love or justice of God. If God were unkind enough to answer some of our prayers at once and in our way, we should be very impoverished Christians. Martin Lloyd-Jones is telling us that if we want to apply this to our lives, what we've got to do is first pause, stop, and zoom out, and look at our lives, not in the perspective of this year, not in the perspective of our time or our generation, but zoom out and look at how this season, this time, fits with the kingdom of God's entire history, with God's plan for everything that's ever happened. He tells us that the plan of God is what the history of the world is all about His plan for his kingdom is the centerpiece of the story of the world. In another place, he kind of gives us this illustration. What do we do when we come across a passage in Scripture that is hard to understand or a verse that doesn't make much sense? How do we make it make sense? How do we understand it? We look at it in its context. We look at the verses before it and the verses after it. We look at the passage that surrounds it, and that gives us a perspective of what that one instance, what that one verse is about Lloyd Jones says it's the same with our lives. We need to see them from a divine perspective, and then we understand that that horrible things happen in history quite often, and quite often God uses them in more glorious ways than we could ever imagine. With Martin Lloyd Jones, after this, his ministry in this church flourished. After this, he began to preach in a way that shed light on the Bible, that that paid attention to the importance of Scripture in a way that was dying in his country, in a way that, that people were fleeing from, and now they got new and fresh light on the Scriptures. I think of it this way. What do, we, what do we think the disciples thought as they saw the Son of God hanging on the tree? Did they think they were seeing the salvation of the world? Did they think they were watching the sacrifice of, that would bring peace between man and God? Probably not. They probably thought that was the end. They they, they probably thought that it was an unredeemable situation. But thank God, thank God we worship a Lord who lives to redeem the unredeemable. You and I are proof of that. So as we end here today, let us realize that all the difficulties that we see in the world around us are no reason to question God's good plan. Instead, we need to realize that just like during any other difficult time in history, God is working these situations for His glory and the good of His kingdom and His church. We worship the God of today, but also the God of history. And we know that one day, the story with the climax of the cross will conclude with the return of Jesus Christ. And for that day, we wait. Until that day, we wait. We be strong and take heart. And we wait for the Lord. Thank you for joining us online. Leewood Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewoodbaptist.com.